Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Hori Emperor Palpatine Nockreiner. <laughs> On dun, today's dun. episode, we will be discussing I'm defending how to, my Death Star. How to blow Death up Star's Death Star. On no. an episode all about attack surface management. Not after I learn all this attack surface management, it will be impenetrable. No insider attacks here. Whatever. With that, let's go ahead and shoot our way in. Pew, 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 pew. So today's episode is uh, a bit different than what we've done previously, at least for the last few months, and that instead of going over today's news, we've picked a topic that we're going to kind of give an overview of our thoughts on it and how to implement it within your organization. And I guess with that, today we are going to be talking all about attack surface management. So I guess like first off, like let's just talk about what the heck attack surface is. And I've actually, I think, got a decent analogy for this. So if you are the chief information security officer for the Death Star, uh, your job in managing an attack surface. Yeah. There's a <laughs> <So>, little hole. <laughs> Probably not long for this world. Uh, but your job is to identify all the potential weaknesses within the Death Star that could allow someone to attack it. So there's the, the fairly obvious ones now in retrospective uh, like that. That thermal, what is it, a thermal exhaust port that you could shoot a missile down perfectly if you just happen to also be a Jedi that could blow it up. Uh, but there's other potential pieces of your attack surface too, like the plans for it. So let's call it like your source code uh, being on a public terminal, terminal that a bunch of people can go steal and then hand off to a droid and ship them off to the, uh, the Rebel Alliance. There's also the risk of like an insider inside the Death Star either accidentally or intentionally sabotaging your systems. So your attack surface is basically all these different little pieces, all the possible possible attack vectors that an adversary could attempt to exploit in order to gain access to your system, uh, to cause some effect on it, like say blow it up, uh, or to steal data from it uh, to then use to go after your organization or just try and sell on the dark web. And so today's episode is going to be discussing like the different components of an attack surface, the different pieces of it, and then how to reduce your overall attack surface so that you hopefully limit it to just a single exhaust port and then maybe install some more guns to shoot people down before they can drop a bomb through it. Does that sound good? I think so. Um, so to start with, like I, we can bucket the attack surface into three main categories. I've broken them out into first your digital attack surface, which we'll describe in a second, then your physical attack surface, and then your human attack surface. So digital makes sense conceptually. It's anything that can be digitally accessed by an adversary from inside or outside your organization. Uh, but even within this, there's a few different categories. So there's your known assets. So these are things like your corporate website, the, the servers you have deployed, the applications you have running, the SaaS applications that you use, and your even your user workstations as well, too, that they use to access this data. But then there's the unknown assets, which is an area that I think tends to be a pretty big problem disproportionately for organizations. So unknown assets being shadow IT, that's a big part of it. 
Um, Corey, do you want to dive into what shadow IT is to a company maybe? Sure. I would say I have a very specific uh, definition of shadow IT because I think it's more about unknown SaaS. By the way, SaaS stands for software as a service. So the whole idea that we now use Office 365 and Microsoft's cloud instead of having our own exchange server, that's software as a service. And the, the beauty of software as a service is it makes things easy. And the known software as a service, that known asset's cool because you made a choice to put it in the cloud. Now you don't have to maintain it quite as diligently yourself as long as you trust your provider. But shadow IT to me is unknown SaaS. The, the issue with SaaS is it's so easy to suddenly have a new IT service that someone in the marketing department can just on their own go decide to oh, I, I want to buy this new marketing app. It's a cloud service. All I have to do is send some data to them and they'll take care of it. But if you don't have the right process at your organization, that becomes shadow IT. Stuff employees have often put up in, in you know, software as a service cloud. I guess while we're talking about unknown assets, of course, this can apply to not just cloud stuff, any un unknown employee installed software devices. There's always the stories about executives putting up their own wireless access point because they don't like the secure one or someone coming, some idiot CSO bringing a new, I don't know, a mixed reality headset into the office <laughs> and connecting it to their laptop so that they can That's be some oddly nerd. specific, Corey. Yeah, no one, no one would do that ever, I don't think, without going through the proper security controls. <laughs> so yeah, I guess shadow IT might apply to other things too, but when I think of shadow IT, I think more of the cloud stuff, but don't forget all the normal unknown assets that are just server and things people install, but they haven't gone through the normal asset management process to be properly recorded so that IT and security know to monitor them. The cloud stuff is a really big one too. And I think a great example of that is like file storage. So like maybe your organization you use, like you got a Microsoft license and so your corporately approved file sharing service through the cloud is OneDrive. But then, you know, you've got this new executive and marketing that comes in and they're only comfortable using dropbox.com and they want to keep using that and so they suddenly start uploading your corporate data maybe sensitive marketing projects information about products you haven't released yet up to dropbox.com and you as an it organization if you don't know that that's going on then you've no way to protect it you have no visibility into who's potentially accessing that no way of adding controls to it that can be a pretty big issue for companies. Yeah, and I think it's the cloud stuff that's made it so easy for employees to do this on their own. I will say, by the way, while you know we come from a CSO office where we want to learn about these unknown assets, don't think of this as necessarily a malicious insider attack yet. You know, 90% of the time, these employees are just familiar with a very common thing like Box. They know how to use it. It's quick and easy. They want to get a document to a partner really quick that they know and trust, but they don't get the, the entire content context of how putting it on that platform without the right sharing session settings might make it public to everyone who has the link rather than the one person. So it's not really intentional usually for these employees. So when you go about trying to find this and communicating with them to avoid doing it, you should you should try to recruit them nicely and not just accuse them and get mad at them. But it's a very common thing that you do need to get to figure out. Actually, you know, I've been studying the managerial lessons 101 currently going on at Twitter, and it seems like getting mad at people. Oh, they have great advice. Them. 
Yeah, is- that works. That works really <laughs> well, right? I think our Twitter's outlook is really good. I think you should it's, go really draconian. <laughs> Not just if they do something bad, if they just give a hint at saying something, uh, you should fire them. That's probably the best security. Yeah, I mean, you don't become the richest person in the world by making wrong decisions, right? <laughs> Including paying $44 billion for a relatively small social... Anyway, America. besides the point. <laughs> we've, we've gotten a little off, off, yep. off topic. <laughs> so, not that that ever happens on this podcast. <laughs> so we hit uh, unknown assets, but there's actually a third category of, uh, of your digital attack surface we need to hit too, and that's rogue ac- assets. So these are, like, I would categorize this as explicitly malicious assets are part of your attack surface and it's not even necessarily like something installed on your network so it could cover like malware that sets up a command and control server within your organization but it can also just be infrastructure that a an attacker set up in order to attack your organization sometime in the future so think like typo squatted domains that they could use in a phishing attack against you or your employees or the command and control infrastructure they've set up to be able to connect into your organization like that sort of stuff Things that you may not, at the end of the day, have direct control over it, but could still impact you or cause it or be used in a successful breach against your company. I would say typo squatter domains is one that you can potentially at least have some uh, chance of catching. Like uh, some advice I like to give is if you've already got someone that's in charge of like your your social media handles. Make it a part of their task, like periodically go out and like actively look for someone abusing something related to your company like okay we got watchguard.com maybe periodically go if you haven't already registered them look for people impersonating your brand through domains look at people impersonating your brand through social media that could be a good way to uh kind of shift left the security responsibility within your organization so anyways that was digital attack surface the next bucket that we want to dive into is the physical attack surface which at the end of the day is vulnerabilities that an attacker could exploit with physical access to either your office or some of your infrastructure. So these days, a lot of our workforce or WatchGuard, the overwhelming majority of our workforce are mobile employees that bring their laptops home. And so even physical access to that, if they forgot it on a bus, could fall into this category. Um, this is everything from like network access into your organization. So do you have exposed services or VPNs they could get into? Mentioned like the unencrypted laptop, which has actually come to bite a lot of uh, uh, like healthcare organizations historically. I think some of the biggest HIPAA fines have been for patient information left on a laptop that gets stolen out of someone's car in a car park. And it's the, the healthcare provider or the insurance provider themselves that gets slapped with that giant HIPAA fine for that. Um, but the reason physical attack surface is still important is because like often all it takes is getting access to one small thing. Doesn't matter if that's like the, your domain controller immediately, if they can get into a user's laptop, they can potentially elevate their access to, um, cause even more damages within the organization. By the way, that's, isn't physical access, probably how the death star plans leaked. Uh, if you remember in Rogue One, they gained physical access to a off-planet uh, empire place where they were able to transmit the plans to Leia's ship uh, and eventually killed the Death Star. Another good real-world example of this, now that we've 
done your metaphor, Mark, is uh, I remember a Indian bank. Uh, you know, we now have offices and shared buildings. And, uh, you know, you have really small strip mall buildings that one may be a bank, but there's a shared IT closet for three businesses in the building that's kept unlocked. And bam, that was how attackers were able to get network access to a particular Indian bank. And basically, they were able to use the SWIFT system to do account transfers and hide the logs. But it all started because of an unlocked network closet that happened to be especially exposed because three different businesses in the same building that obviously could care less about physical security were using that one closet. Yeah. And I know it's easy to jump to like the extreme view of this of, like someone physically walking into your place of business and like plugging into your terminal. But like Corey just said, like depending on the type of organization you are, doesn't even necessarily mean walking through your doors. It could just be walking through some shared doors somewhere. Um, so that's physical attack surface. And the third one, human attack surface, should be a bit of an obvious one. This is basically just the the entirety of your individuals within your company that are susceptible to social engineering. And so some things that can impact them through here is like phishing, vishing, smishing, all the other ishings that are out there these days. Dropping I mean, USB keys on the sidewalk, offering which, chocolate for passwords. <laughs> I mean, I remember it was, if you had told me like three years ago, let's say even that recent, that there would be some successful breaches because someone picked up a thumb drive off of, like it, it felt like one of those like, okay, yes, that could happen, but surely no one is stupid enough to do theoretical that. but no one's dumb enough yeah yeah but the reality is there have been some even microsoft detailed uh in one of their blog posts earlier this year of like thousands of successful attacks from just mailing out thumb drives to people and then plugging them into their computers i mean curiosity killed the cat i have to admit i do play with every thumb drive i get i am that weirdo that has still this old dell mini that i don't use for anything that is kind of my sacrificial what the heck is on this usb key computer but it's a simple curiosity man you pick up a thumb drive on the sidewalk and you're like i wonder what's on here <laughs> Is it someone's Bitcoin wallet? Nope, malware. But I mean, like attackers are getting kind of crafty about it too. Like they'll make even the packaging look like it's coming from Amazon so that it looks like you just got a misshipment of like some SanDisk thumb drive and you go plug it in and they exploit like a .LNK vulnerability within Windows or your misconfiguration that allows it to auto-mount, auto-execute and... Or worse yet, it's a real marketing strategy. I think USB keys are still sent out as marketing tchotchkes, like a free gift if you go, you know, here's a USB key, now come come to my website and buy something. Uh, it's one of those where I do still I've seen it at security conferences. It. Yeah. I've literally seen security companies give away USB keys. So, and by the way, there's some WatchGuard branded ones from back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we're still working on quashing that one out of our our marketing closet so far. But it is, it, I feel like at this day and age, we shouldn't be giving out USB keys because who the heck knows what could potentially be on them. Um, so outside that, though, uh, human attack service can also be just traditional in-person social engineering, too. So I think the person putting on a hard hat and a vest coming in saying they're working on your HVAC system. Like I know when we do uh, penetration testing engagements or we hire someone to come penetration test us, like we do include that as a piece of it too. Like we yeah. have someone see if they can get in to watch. I actually, 
Got a, a bonus. Well, actually, we let them get in, too, and see if anyone questions them. On one of them, I before I was CSO, by the way, I was the first person to go up and say, Hi, I don't know you. Who are you? I'm Corey. Nice to meet you. Are you new here? <laughs> so, yeah, it's a common thing. In fact, if uh, you should make sure to train your employees to say hi to people that they don't recognize, there's ways you can do it while still pretending like you're introducing yourself to a new person but ask enough questions to see if they really belong where they do. And as somewhere, I've done that. I mean, it's amazing how many people you can get past, even in a secure location, by walking there as though you feel totally comfortable, have a purpose, and you're supposed to be there. Or even get them to hold the door open for you, too. Like, yeah. show up with just a bunch of heavy-looking boxes in your hands, and often they'll just let you right in, too. Yep. That's people are kind thing is, yeah, sometimes. Social engineering really preys on the fact that in general, humanity tends to be trusting and caring towards people, even if you don't know who they are. And that's that's a security risk, unfortunately. Yeah, trust but verify, meaning uh, it's okay to keep your kindness, but it's also okay to ask questions and make sure someone belongs while you're trying to be kind. Who the hell are you and why are you eating our donuts in the break room? That's probably it. So those are the three main buckets of attack surface, though. And I think the first step of protecting your attack surface is first just figuring out what the heck it is within your own specific organization. And one of the, if not the best way to do that is first and foremost, just doing a asset and a data audit of your company. So it's, you hear it all the time, it is impossible to defend what you don't know. And so the first step of any cybersecurity program to address your attack surface is figuring out what the heck it is. So to start that out, like figuring out uh, what your important systems are that are out there. So where do you keep your data? Um, this can involve uh, working with like questionnaires through your individual teams to figure out, oh, marketing is using Dropbox.com instead of the, the corporate issued file sharing system. Uh, so figuring out where that's being stored doing network maps of your organization, like network scanning maps to figure out any rogue assets that have been turned on on your networks. Uh, and then figuring out who has access to those systems and that data as well too, should be the first steps of doing a data and an asset audit. And then once you identify what all those systems are, next step is figuring out what are they potentially vulnerable to. Uh, some of this activity is considered like threat modeling. So figuring out if someone were to try and say, get into the crown jewels of watchguard.com, what are the potential ways that they could get in, uh, figure out which vulnerabilities you might have. And that's not just software vulnerabilities, but also configuration or architectural weaknesses too. So yes, it's fully patched, but do we expose it straight up to the internet? That's a vulnerability. Um, when it comes to software vulnerabilities, taking into consideration not just like their severity, but also are they being actively exploited? Is there proof of concept code out there on the internet? Because the reality is like a critical vulnerability is scary, but I care more about a high severity vulnerability that is being actively exploited by multiple threat actors and the proof of concept code is published on 50 different GitHub repos. And so a lot of vulnerability management tools these days are finally taking that into account when they give you like a scoring system to uh, prioritize what you go after. But don't just go based off of this is a critical, this is a high, so clearly I need to do the critical first. Um, part of this is also doing a risk assessment as well too. So what's most likely to be targeted with your organization? 
what are some acceptable levels of risk too? Like the reality is you're not going to patch every single hole, every single weakness within your company, and you got to prioritize which ones you go after. Corey, anything that you feel like you'd want to share when it comes to a risk assessment from a, from a CISO and a business level on this one? I think you got all the the important things. I mean, the like you said, severity is very important, but severity is business specific too. Don't forget the one of the first things you should do in any risk assessment is have a data audit where you know where the important data is. For instance, if you find a medium vulnerability in your source code server that may only be internally exposed and through a VPN, that probably doesn't sound as bad as a remote code execution critical that's in a public FTP server. But what if the public FTP server is just there to share marketing PDFs with the, with the public and you honestly don't give a crap about the data or the asset beyond you know that uptimes? Really, then the criticality might be on the source code server first. So I think the only thing I would add is when you're assessing severity, Critical doesn't always mean worse if there's other mitigating factors, but more importantly, data is what you're protecting. I mean, our technically our, our industry or our practice is called information security. It's not about the computers themselves at all. It's about the data the computers provide and, and store uh, and to make the data available. So make sure to add you know what is important to your business what data is more most important to your severity calculation when you're trying to close that attack surface and sometimes there's acceptable risk if the business information being exposed is not important at all to you yep that's fair so when it comes to like after you've identified your attack surface everything from physical digital and human the next step is trying to reduce it as much as possible because the the smaller the attack surface you have, the less stuff that you need to be concerned about an attacker potentially being able to exploit. And I think like the first step on this, or at least the most impactful step on this, um, is adopting something that we, I think, just made fun of last week in terms of its buzzwordiness, but really a zero trust architecture approach to your entire information security system is a really good step towards reducing your attack surfaces in your company. Because A, like first off, zero trust, it basically boils down to not just trust, but verify, but never trust, always verify. Meaning you assume that there's malicious activity going on. You assume that maybe a, a malicious insider or someone, one of your users had their account compromised and effectively limiting the black blast radius of what they could have access to within your company. So that boils down to the principle of least privileged, making sure that people only have access to specifically what they need and nothing more, making sure you're monitoring that access to, to look for potentially malicious activity on top of that and being able to quickly respond to it before they potentially get past some of your defenses. Like, or you gave the example of the source code repository. That's an example. I think both you and I give all the time when it comes to zero trust of there is no reason your marketing team needs access to your source code repository on a network level. Like, yes, that server is hopefully protected by multi-factor authentication to actually get into it and access the source code. But the reality is then you're just relying on there not being a pre-authentication vulnerability or the attacker being able to, once they gain network access, uh, elevate their access and compromise other accounts and then gain access to that server. 
So why even give them network access in the first place when you could just restrict it based off of the users that actually need to get into it? Um, so, I mean, outside of zero trust, there's other areas you should look into when it comes to attack surface redu uh, reduction. Uh, using strong authentication is one of them. So this is A, multi-factor authentication everywhere possible. Like beyond just privileged accounts, but into uh, normal user accounts too. Like these days, it's relatively simple to set up MFA on anything that supports SAML authentication. And most applications just in general these days support it too. But then also making sure you've got good password policies as well. So I am still a very strong proponent for password managers, making sure that every single user account has a strong, unique password so that if one gets compromised, an attacker can't just use that to get into another. Um, I know NIST recently updated their standards when it comes to password recommendations too. They should definitely check out. What were you going to suggest, Corey? I was just going to double that password. You'll hear me and Mark say repeatedly MFA is the solution for strong authentication, and that is true. But MFA is, in my opinion, always going to include passwords. I know we're going through a period of time where we're trying to say no passwords and biometrics and other tokens, and maybe that will happen to a greater extent, but we'll still have pins and codes in other areas. So uh, to me, while MFA is the, the best strong authentication fix, a password manager is still absolutely crucial and necessary because... You know, looking at some of the password practices, it's crazy that some security papers out there still talk about eight character password maximums. I don't know if that's what NIST updated. We recently finally moved to 12, and I think even that's too little. I, I'm a 16 or higher kind of guy, and frankly, if I had a choice, 24. Uh, and the only way to do that successfully is with a password manager because of human nature. So... All, I'm, all I wanted to add was, you know, while we really push MFA, we think it really is the, the mitigating factor that will save you because passwords, even the longest ones, will still get leaked occasionally. Uh, password manager, I'm sorry, MFA can help there. Make sure to use a password manager because you want to use good password management practices. But guess what? Humans can't do good password management practices. They're too hard without a password manager. So make sure to use a free one even. And overall, like secrets management within an organization is beneficial too. Like the reality is you still probably have some shared accounts for like some SaaS application you use maybe. And so instead of sharing those passwords through email or an Excel spreadsheet that you ship around to everyone, like most password managers these days that are built for companies have some form of like team password sharing capabilities in them as well. Some of them, they can even make it more difficult for individuals to even see that password um, without permission from whoever set up that shared credential too. So definitely look into those um, so that you're not just shipping around a giant file and, of passwords. And correct audit logs for when, mm -hmm. you know, a typical shared password, you don't know if it was John, Don, John, Doug, or Ryan who used it by just entering the same user and password. But if sometimes these shared password can have uh, different users associated so you at least get change log of what user was using the shared password at the time. So next step of attack surface reduction is eliminating complexity. And so what I mean by this is like it is great to have a 
you know, a cybersecurity solution, let's say, with all the bells and whistles and everything you could potentially configure. But the reality is if it's incredibly complex to set up and manage, the chances of you making a mistake go up with that as well, too. And so by instead having solutions and protections and policies and procedures that are relatively simple to follow, reduces the chance of you having that mistake that then, you know, allows the attacker to, to sidestep everything that you just set up. Uh, it's easy for me to sit here and pitch products made by a certain company with a red branding for this one. Uh, but the reality is just making sure that whatever you're setting up, do what you can to limit that complexity. Some of that can be uh, making sure you deploy systems that are under a single pane of glass to make it easier to manage for you, making ones that are easier for your users to use as well, too, to get that buy-in on it as well, limit the chance of them trying to circumvent some of your protections. Um, but I don't know, this one, maybe it is a little bit self-explanatory of just don't deploy, de deploy the thing that is the most sophisticated if you don't know how to actually set it up properly. Having one that is easier to manage can tend to be more beneficial. Um, next up uh, for attack surface reduction is just having a plan and procedure for continuous patch management and vulnerability management within your organization. So this means at a minimum, like just have a regular schedule that you test and deploy patches on. Maybe this follows Microsoft's Patch Tuesday, where the second Tuesday of every month you go through and update your Windows servers, and maybe you throw your Linux ones on there as well too, just so they're on an interval. The reality is like, it doesn't necessarily matter how often it is. The biggest thing is just making sure you actually follow a schedule so you don't end up with a system that is now three years out of date because you don't have it on some form of patch management. And then vulnerability management comes on on top of this to help identify some of those critical issues that pop through and let you jump on them potentially quicker outside of your normal patching schedule. I would, I, the only addition I would make to that is while I know there's busy IT departments, I would make it at least monthly. So I wouldn't say it doesn't entirely matter how often you do it. I, I guess you could do it quarter. I'd, I'd rather you have a quarterly schedule than no schedule at all. That's but what I I'm think a, a monthly cycle has kind of become the standard. And there, in at least one program, there's one like critical in the wild exploit thing I feel like every month. I mean, uh, Microsoft just had four zero days, I think, or six actually, that were being exploited in the wild during this month's patch day. So if you got to those three months later, you might be in trouble. So uh, I would encourage you to try to at least get it monthly. Yep. And like part of your patch management program should be like having a run book on how to respond to those criticals that come through. It's like maybe you do patch on a monthly basis, but every once in a while, Microsoft, as an example, puts out a out of band update for Windows for something being actively exploited in the wild. So making sure you have a plan in place beforehand on how do we quickly test and deploy that when those do come through uh, beyond that normal every Tuesday patch thing. Um, and then the final step that I wanted to highlight is just user security education. So this helps the human attack surface element. And this boils down to phishing awareness, training and testing, um, a regular security educational program within your company, and then just getting buy-in from the users to your security organization. Uh, it basically, it, it boils down to, you know, we can't solve every security issue ourselves from the CISO office. We need to make sure that our employees recognize that they are part of the security program 
and they are actively engaged in trying to keep themselves and our companies secure. And so having good training to go along with that, good awareness campaigns can help out and go a long way. I would even say creating a culture of of people not just, you know, dragging their feet going through the awareness training, but actually wanting to help out because they realize the importance and know that it affects their personal life too. So get beyond, if you can, just the normal regular training and try to make a culture out of it. Try to make it a, a proactive thing that is more positive and less negative. And I will say the CSO office definitely can't block anything. I can imagine a world one day where we somehow have perfect coders, we solve every technical security vulnerability, and we don't leave any technical gaps. Well, guess what? Human social engineering can still happen. Someone can still convince somebody to on their own download a file and run it, and there goes all the security, technical security you worked on. So you can't you can't forget the user for sure, as Mark said. This is a critical component, even if you have the technical defenses licked. And that culture should be building a program around leading with the carrot and not the stick. Like you want your users to come to you as the IT or security person with they think they spotted something or maybe they think they fell for a fish. Like you want them to be comfortable enough to be bring it to your attention instead of you relying on some monitoring or whatever tool in order to detect that activity. We use things like simple rewards and contests. So we certainly do fake phishing to show people when they do accidentally, but instead of making it a, oh, you're bad, you go on a naughty list thing, you know, we also have spot the fish if you, you know, for the people that report it and uh, we have a raffle and, and someone gets a gift card, a Amazon gift card or whatever every month or quarter. So there's lots of carrots you can use. I think even psychology will tell you you'll you'll get more success and productivity of others through sticks rather than carrot or I'm sorry, through carrots rather than sticks. Okay, Man, Elon. Don't wanna don't wanna get that backwards. <laughs> Yeah, Otherwise, or you can throw all of that out the window and just fire people instantly when they do something you disagree with. That works as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and say that I believe in complete freedom of speech unless someone's parodying me, in which case I'm going to censor the heck out of you. Logic. Logic, yes. Anyways, hopefully that was beneficial. It's just a really high-level overview of overall attack surface management within a company. And... Uh, like at a minimum, like I'd like to hear from you, the listeners, on programs that have helped you within your organization uh, get some of this across, challenges that you've potentially faced with addressing your attack surface. Like that'd be great to uh, pitch our way with the, what is it, the hashtag, the 443 podcast, and we can discuss those on a future episode too. For sure. By the way, I want to point out that uh, while this may seem 101, this is not a one-time thing. This is constant maintenance. I think the one thing we, we forgot to, to repeat when we were talking about the attack surface analysis starting with asset and data audits to find, you know, you can't protect what you don't know. I think anyone that's run IT for a period beyond a year or two, especially as a company gets bigger, realizes that what you knew two months ago could be completely different today. Uh, networks, assets, data tend to grow exponentially and organically, especially in this SaaS world. So even if you think you've done all of this before, you may have to go all the way back and just redo the basic asset and data audits, sometimes even bottoms up. Uh, 
you know, to get a new view of what reality is because the things you may have, the assets you may have think you already solved for may suddenly have, you may have new attack surface you never knew of. Yeah, well said. And at a minimum, hey, it's job security for us, right? It's what they pay <laughs> us to do. Data and asset audits and nothing else. Sometimes it feels like that. And make jokes. <laughs> a lot of audits. <laughs> Lots of audits. A few sim tweaks here and there. It's an easy job, really. That's why everyone's in cybersecurity. It's so simple. Yep. No, no downside whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Just ask Uber's old CISO for that. Oh, I, yeah, you yeah. Know, I could argue here and that. I don't know. He might be playing tennis in a country club jail. I don't know if that would be too complainy. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or if you have a suggestion for a future episode topic like attack surface management, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. And make sure to tweet Mark on how to manage your FTX cryptocurrency wallets. That exists. Country club jails. Aren't there like low security ones where they pretty much are pampered? I'm going to keep that in mind when I get arrested for something stupid inevitably. <laughs>